Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to the podcast. And guess who's back? We have all the way from San Francisco, we have Madison. Hey Maddie, what's going on? Hi. I finished up school, was away for a couple months, but now I'm back. People people were today. asking about you. They're like, why is your show so boring? When did you get so old? Stop it. <laughs> Oh my god. No, I don't believe you though. But if people actually said that, that's very nice of them. No, the, there were people who were like, so is Maddie coming back ever again? I was like, I don't know. She's pretty busy. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, no, I'm glad you're here too. Because it would have been just me. So that's never good. But, yeah. Um, so you've been busy doing uh, summer stuff? Yeah. I also think it's good that I'm here though, because I'm also like one of the targeted audiences for the book. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, he, he does a lot with... Oh, we should say who we're talking to today. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. We Actually, we've been talking about this show, like, when it was, like, February or something. <laughs> Didn't I say something about trying to get Gene Yang on for months? I, I never heard you say that, but I remember when I first joined in December and you said, Madison, like, do research. Let me know if there's anything you're interested in or people you want to talk to. The first thing that came to my mind was this book. But I never thought it was in the realm of possibility to be able to get him on the show. Yeah, right. I think it's so special that he's coming on today, though, because the podcast just turned a year old, so it's like a marker of our progress, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking to like national legends, and uh... <laughs> I know. <laughs> so yeah, we're talking to uh, Gene Lun Yang. He is—he's actually local. Uh, lives in the Bay Area. Um, if if you say Asian graphic novelist. I mean, he's got to be the first one that comes to mind, right? And he's just a legend. When I think of graphic novelist, I think of him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not even just Asian, right? Yeah. It's such like, I feel like in middle school, we had this phase. I don't know if your daughters read this, but like the Raina Telgemeier books. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, this book, too. Yeah. Like, I had a big graphic novel phase. Yeah, Babysitter's Club. That, yeah, there's and it's the section is huge now. If you go to like, actually, there's one Barnes and Nobles left in our, in our, I go to Tan France sometimes, and they have a whole wall of graphic novelists. Now. And I think when when Gene came out with American Born Chinese in 2006, I I don't think there were a whole lot. <laughs> we could ask him about that. Yeah. But I think it was really truly. You don't say groundbreaking lightly, you know. Like it's kind of one of those words that mm -hmm. some people might throw it around, but. I think his book was really, truly groundbreaking at the time. Yeah. And it was recognized, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about some of his accolades. But you said you read it, right? You read it when you of were... Of course I did. When you were 12 or what, what do you think? Like, honestly, I think like fourth grade. Yeah, yeah. Between fourth grade and seventh grade. No, seventh grade is too far, like fourth and sixth grade. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just always remember going to the library and seeing it on display, like as a recommend, like a recommended book. Yeah, and it's but, yeah. super deep, but it's it's accessible to a ten year old. You know, like you can yeah, you can exactly. read it and understand it. Super digestible and um, entertaining, but it still has that important moral, which that's why uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, why it's so good. So I think if you read it at different times in your life, even it might. It might speak to you differently, I think. Oh, for sure. Because I just read it a couple days ago over again. Um, because I, I forgot a lot about it. Uh-huh, yeah. But, but it hit me again. Yeah, yeah. It's like holding up a mirror to your face and your experiences. For real. Sort of pointing in that way. Where it's like, God, I feel so ashamed that I can relate to Jin so much. I think, I think you know... I think you'd be weird if you didn't. If you're a, if you're Asian American, especially Chinese American, and if you read or this, an immigrant or yeah, and it didn't hit you like that, I think you know. I, I think it hits everyone. Mm -hmm. So super excited. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about how we got this show together. But I'm super excited. I hope I hope the audience audience out there are you excited about that? I hope you are. Me too. <laughs> He's not even here, and we're already gassing him up so much. Well, yeah, I think we, we need love to get Gene. we we got to get our uh, our fan <laughs> fan boy and fan girling out of the way a little bit, so we're not total like just falling all over ourselves. <laughs> okay. Okay.
everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We have a special guest today. Uh, it's a guy that we've been, Madison, we've been talking about trying to get this guy since when? February, March? We've been talking about trying to get our guest. Yeah. And then it was my friend Lorson, who I went to high school with, said, hey, would you like to get talk to Gene Yang someday? And I'm like, of, of course I'd like to talk to Gene Yang. And then I told you about it, and you had said that you read his book when you were, what, 10 years old? Around there. Oh, I was feel so old. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Thanks for reading no, it. You know, you, know, you know when you've made, you made a mark in the world is when like a 50-something-year-old guy and a 16-year-old kid can both relate to something that you've produced, you know? Like that's... Well, thank you. That's, that, yeah. that is a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, thank you. No, it's timeless. <laughs> I think, I think it's, it's timeless in so many ways. So the voice you're listening to is Gene Yang. He's an illustrator and an author and so much more. Uh, in 2006, he released American Born Chinese. It's a graphic novel. If you haven't read it, you need to stop right here and go out and get it and, and read it. It's a, it's a book that I think will touch you in, in many ways. And now he is uh, also a comic book artist. He's working on, I don't know, how, how did you swing this where you're working both for Marvel and for DC? Is that allowed? Do they allow this thing to happen? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's different from back in the olden okay. days. You know, back in the olden days, you wouldn't be able to do it. But, uh, but nowadays, like, there's some artists and writers that are exclusive to one. But if you're not exclusive, you can, you can do okay. both. Okay, all right. I, I'm very lucky. I feel very lucky to have projects with each one. Yeah, so he's worked on Superman. He's worked on the new Superman, which is the Chinese version of Superman. He's working on Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Uh, he was awarded, now this is a big deal, I think. He's awarded the MacArthur Fellowship, which a lot of times people refer to as the Genius Grant. Do you like that title? Do you make people call you a genius when they... when they? T- I, I try to get my wife to do it, but <laughs> nobody else. And she totally refuses. She's never once called me that. Well, I can't believe why. I can't understand why. Uh, also won the Michael L. Prince Award and many other awards. And uh, this is a cool fact, too, that you were a high school teacher for 17 years? I was. I was. I taught at Bishop O'Dowd High School in Oakland, California for a very, very long time. What's their mascot? It was oh, it was the dragons. All right, go dragons! That's right, go dragons! Uh, so epic. we are talking to Gene Lun Yang. Welcome to the show, Gene. Thank you, thank you, Curtis. Thank you, Madison. It's great to be here. We should say this is our second time doing this. I forgot to hit record, everybody. So <laughs> full full transparency here. We're talking about this stuff a second time around, but at least I didn't get all the way through an hour. And I realized halfway through that that's kind of a good catch. Yeah, that was warm up. That was all yeah. just warm up. Now, yes, and, and now, now we're, all, this we're is the real thing. We're old friends now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right, let's get into your yeah. origin story a little bit because I think it's it's pretty fun. Uh, you were born and raised in the Bay Area, yeah? That's right. That's right. I have spent my whole life here in the Bay Area. So I grew up in the South Bay, and then I went up to the East Bay for for college. Lived there for a number of years before moving back down to the South Bay. Now you were in the South Bay, and then you moved out, kind of to the outer parts of the South Bay for a minute, right? Like when you were in middle school, was when was that? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in a small town called Saratoga. And uh-huh. um, when we moved in there, we were one of just a, a handful of Asian American families in our neighborhood. I mean, there were so few Asian Americans that my mom was actually able to go to uh, my school, right? I, was, I think I was starting first grade and she asked for the names and the addresses of all of the other Chinese families <laughs> in the neighborhood. And then one Saturday, we just went to visit them. There are like two or three of them, you know, just to introduce ourselves. So nowadays, there's no way you would be able, you would be able to do that. So first, the, the school would never give you the addresses because it's probably illegal. And, and second, there are just way too many Chinese families now, you know. Um, so it's very different. I think I grew up in that transition. You know, by the time I was in high school, there was a small... Asian American minority at our school, and nowadays that same high school is majority Asian. Yeah, mm-hmm. was that was that scene in the book kind of similar to your life, where there's a one Chinese kid, you know, you're the one Chinese kid in the class, and then the other, the one other Chinese kid comes in and says, "Hey, we should be friends." Is oh that- yeah, totally. There was, I mean, I remember when I was in um, when I was in third grade, there was a kid that came from Taiwan into second grade. 
And all of the adults around us, like the yard duty teachers, like our classroom <laughs> teachers, they all really, really, really wanted us to be friends. And I really, really did not want to be a friend. You know, like he would like follow me around and it just like totally yeah. annoy me. And I didn't want, like, I didn't understand what was going on at the time, you know, but, but now I get it. Now I'm like, it was because mm-hmm. I was already starting to become aware of what made me different and right. hanging out with this kid just emphasized all of that. So I wanted nothing yeah. to do with him. Yeah. Is that who Wei Chen's son is based yeah, off that, of? Yeah, that's he's based on, in part on, on that kid. But Wei Chen is kind of an amalgamation sure, of all of yeah. these different kids. I saw on the dedication page that you said it's like for your dad who talked oh, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. is that like how did that play into? His yeah, so I told my my mom and my dad were both storytellers, and my mom was a much more traditional storyteller. Mm-hmm. So she would read these uh, Chinese language storybooks to me, you know, about the Monkey King and about all these other uh-huh. Chinese legendary figures. Whereas my dad would just kind of make up stories off the top of his head, and he made up a character called Atong, yeah. who was like this Taiwanese village boy. And then as an adult, when I look back on his stories, I realized Aton was probably a stand-in for him. These were probably stories about him uh, when he was a kid. Most of them were kind of like scatological. Uh-huh. That's what I liked when I was a little kid. So yeah. like th- there was a story about how Aton's dad would make him go and um, pick up cow manure in front of their house with a pair of chopsticks. I thought it was really funny when I was a little kid. But I think my my grandpa probably made my probably, dad actually did that, it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's cool. But but you know, I I think um I think American born Chinese really did come out of this lifelong feeling of like um, unsettledness with my own Asian Americanness. Sure. You know, and and um and just yeah. remembering how when I was a kid, I did go through many years where I felt really embarrassed about being a Chinese American, even if I couldn't voice it, even if I couldn't really articulate my emotions, it was still there. Me too. So, Gene, were you into comic books when you were a kid? And, and was this kind of something that you'd always kind of done, doodling and drawing? And Yeah, I, I bought my very first comic when I was in the fifth grade. It was from, a, I think it was like a Crown Books by our house. Yeah, yeah. And, and back in the old days, you know, every bookstore had a spinner rack that would carry a month's worth of comics. You could spin the whole thing so you could see all the comics. And one night, my mom took me to this bookstore and she bought me a copy of it was DC Comics Presents number 57, starring Superman and the Atomic Knights. That was my very first comic book. Uh-huh. After that, I was kind of hooked. You know, I, I think uh, I, I fell in love with the medium and I started just trying to pester my parents into bringing me to our local comic book shop as often as possible. And I slowly built up my comic book collection. So around that same time, I started also drawing my own comic books. So I, I had a best friend named Jeremy Kuniyoshi in fifth grade. And we would do comics together. You know, at lunch, we would sit down, we would come up with stories. I would do all the pencils. He would do all the inks. Wow. And we'd put these comics together. We'd sell them to our friends for 50 cents a piece. That was kind of the beginning of my comic book career. And this carried on through college. Yeah, like after you graduate college, you you got a job as a teacher at Bishop O'Dowd in Oakland. And you just were drawing on your free time and making Xerox, going to Kinko's and making copies of these. Is this kind of how it started? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It uh, like I, you know, I I stopped drawing comics around like junior high, uh, and then I started and I stopped collecting it around that time too because I had this friend who was way more popular than me. He told me that comics were just not cool, and if I <laughs> kept collecting comics, I would never get a girlfriend. And I really wanted a girlfriend, so I stopped, and that ended up like not helping at all. Like I just didn't have comics, and I also didn't have a girlfriend. So eventually, I started collecting comic books again mm-hmm. when I was in high school. And it was always just a dream of mine to publish at least one comic book. So after I graduated from college, I got a job as a programmer for a couple of years as a coder. Uh, And then eventually I left that job and I became a high school computer science teacher. And I also started doing comic books. So I started writing and drawing my own comics on the sides. In the beginning, it was like during summers and during winter break and then after school. Uh, and then eventually uh, I was able to go part-time at my teaching job and just draw comics and write comics with the other part of my time. Mm-hmm. And and so I I don't I heard that American Born Chinese wasn't your first kind of Asian character. You had some earlier graphic novels that you had just done. 
Yeah, American Mortenies was actually my third graphic novel. So the, the it was the first one that was published in full color. But the very first one I did was called Gordon Yamamoto and the King of the Geeks. And it was about a young man who gets this spaceship stuck inside of his nose <laughs> and friends with the alien who's living inside the ship. So, you know, from the very beginning, like from when, when I started doing comics as an adult, um, I had already started working through like my own identity as an Asian American, started thinking about it, you know, deeply. And, and I would always have an Asian American protagonist, but American more Chinese really is the very first story that I did where that was central being Asian American mm-hmm. was central. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you're writing this, did you, did you just know that this was going to be something big or no, or this... no, 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 <laughs> no. When like I was, um, I was self-publishing it, you know? So yeah. I was like, uh, I was, it was kind of like what I was doing with Jeremy in the fifth grade. Only I was doing it uh-huh. as an adult, you know, while Jeremy <laughs> was actually like, he was in med school and I was still writing, drawing yeah. and Xeroxing comics. So I would finish the chapter. I'd take it to our local copy store. It was, it was a shop called Copy Central uh, in Berkeley. And then I would Xerox copies uh, of it. I would staple it by hand. And then I'd take it to these shows or these stores to sell it. There was a, a store in um, in Berkeley called um, Comic Relief that would sell Xerox comics, like hand-bound comics like that on consignment. And there was another bookstore called Eastwind Books, which is still right. around. It's an right. Asian American yeah. bookstore. And they also would let me sell it, you know, on consignment there. So that that was kind of, it was like so small scale. And, and I was hoping like at some point I would collect those comics into a graphic novel, but I was not expecting like what happened after it was published was just well beyond anything I was expecting. Yeah. I, I heard you're actually losing money on each cut. Co- like cost you more to make it than to Oh than yeah, yourself. yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was I mean, <laughs> I was part of like this independent comic book scene, right? So there are a group of cartoonists. We would all go to these shows, we'd hang out afterwards, and we were all doing this. We were all like self-producing comics. We were all Xeroxing comics and selling them by hand. And um and every time you did it, you would lose anywhere from a couple hundred and sometimes depending on how you printed it, like a couple thousand dollars, you know? Um, it was just not, it was not lucrative at all. But but the way I justified it in my head was I was like, you know, some people, they lose a lot of money by playing golf, but they do it because they love it. So right. that's, this is like my golf, you know, like yeah, instead of yeah. like buying fancy yeah. golf equipment, I'm going to make comic books. Okay. But the story starts to resonate with people. Where did so the story is based a little bit on your life and then you know just kind of uh things that you've been told like you heard stories from your dad about the Monkey King where where did you put all the pieces together for this story Yeah Monkey King Monkey King was a bedtime story at our uh-huh. house so my uh-huh. mom uh, used to read these Chinese language stories to us you know and and Monkey King was probably my favorite out of all of her stories he's just such a cool character you know yeah. there's a reason why he's so popular yeah. in Asia. Um, so that was for my mom. And then, um, you know, when I started American More Chinese, I knew I wanted to talk about the Asian American experience. And I came up with these three different ideas uh, on how to do that, but I couldn't decide which one I liked the best. So American More Chinese really began as like an intellectual exercise. I wanted to figure out how to get all three of these stories to fit together in one book. So one idea was to use the Monkey King as a way of talking about being an Amer- Asian American. Another one was I wanted a more naturalistic story that was largely based on my own life. And then the final one was um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to do like a comic version of a sitcom where Mm. the main character is like, you know, like a Long Duck Dong style character. But instead of like Long Duck Dong is is an unironic character, right? He's just, you're supposed to laugh at him and that's it. But I wanted to do something a little more deeper with him. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Chinky a little bit. I think he... Uh, I don't know. He makes you uncomfortable. He's, I think it was super risky as you wrote him. How, like for the audience out there who may not know him that well, how would you describe Chinky? I mean, he is. Yeah, he he really is a, a walking, talking version of um, all of the Asian, Asian American, Chinese, Chinese American stereotypes that I could think of. In, in a lot of ways, I thought of him yeah. as like a, a demon that had yeah. been haunting me since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And and I was trying to work something out by putting him on the page, right? Like 
one of the most satisfying yeah. panels to draw was where I got to take his head off towards the yeah. end of the book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's like a he's like a caricature of all those negative stereotypes yeah. that you said. Yeah, he he's like I, I think in a lot of ways he embodies how I worried other people saw me. Right. You know? Or yeah. and also in some ways how yeah. I saw other Asian Americans. Yeah. The self hate and mm-hmm. the, yeah, that that was deep. And and then that the twist at the end where it's like, you know, hey, I wish I were white. You know, I think I think all of us I don't know, I I might I'm speaking for myself, but I know Growing up, when you're not the dominant culture, I, I think a lot of people who feel othered, that's that's what they wish. You know, they wish they're just part of dominant culture. They wish they could just be able to blend in and just be quote unquote normal or mainstream, whatever you want to call it. So have you gotten messages from people like that they can relate to that feeling? Yeah, I, I've been really lucky. I've been lucky in that um, I've gotten to go all over the country to visit these different communities at schools and at libraries to talk about the themes of the book. And what I found is that um, there are a lot of people who do resonate with like the underlying ideas and the underlying experiences and the underlying emotions. And and they're not all Asian American. It seems like the book has particular resonance with uh, children of immigrants, regardless of where their parents came from. You know, I've had people come up to me after I give a talk and uh, their parents might be from Poland or Nigeria or the Philippines. Uh, it almost doesn't matter, you know, but but they still understand what it feels like to be caught in between uh, two cultures and what it feels like to want to excise the things inside of you that yeah. make you different from the dominant culture. Yeah. It's really strange how I was able to relate to it on a sense of being insecure about being an Asian American because San Francisco is such a I'm a the major mm. I'm a part of the majority and I was still able to relate to it on like a cultural sense that's so <laughs> I don't know where that comes from but it meant a lot to me as a kid because it was like I don't know it's just like such a good rendering of what it feels like to reject mm. your culture and stuff well, that's that's nice to hear as the as the author of the book I, I do think that, you know, I have gone visited uh, communities where it's like majority Asian, right? Like a school that's majority Asian. Uh-huh. And, and I have met Asian American kids who seem like they don't totally connect with the book because of that. But, but uh-huh. maybe uh, in uh-huh. your case, uh, Madison, maybe like even though you're immediately in a majority Asian community in San Francisco, you are still part of like a, a nation, you know, that um, that is not. Yeah, so, and, and and Madison is interested in music and becoming a performer, and mm. I think we've talked about this before, Maddie. That you just don't see a lot of people that look like you in the rock scene yeah. or in the pop scene. There's just not a. There's more now than there used to be, but yeah, you that's know, right. even that's right. just five years mm-hmm. ago, it was really hard to see someone that looked like you. Yeah. Also, just like even like women in the audio industry or like mm-hmm. music technology. Yeah. yeah. So it's like that intersectionality makes it yeah, even that's harder. Right. That's right. So this book, so I, I'm assuming someone saw this somehow, or did you have to go to a publisher or how did, how did this happen where it started getting national attention from, from East West books, you know, in, in Oakland, how did you go from there to getting some, getting a publisher getting some national attention? Well, some of it really was right place, right time. I was just really lucky. You know, I was working, uh, in comics and graphic novels at a time where comics and graphic novels were really breaking through into the American consciousness. So the book was published in 2006. If you rewind from that five years, most people did not know what a graphic novel was. Yeah. Uh, and then if you fast forward five years, graphic novels were like a staple part of libraries and, and, and schools and that sort of thing. So I really was in a lot of ways at the right place at the right time. Uh Um, I think I have a lot of people to thank. There's a guy named Craig Thompson who did a book called Blankets, which I think is, if not the first, one of the first young adult graphic novels. You know, he he deals with themes of um, of growing up uh, and and he tackles them in a very serious and a very uh, literary way. You know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and I think after that book came out, 
people started having a category for literary comics and, and literary graphic novels. And, and they started talking about it, you know, at awards committees and that sort of thing. So yeah. I signed up with First Second Books. I was part of their second season. They were a brand new publisher at the time. They were part of a much larger publisher called Macmillan. But it was a brand new imprint within Macmillan that was completely focused on graphic novels. And I was really introduced to First Second by a good friend of mine named Derek Kirk Kim, who is one of the most talented cartoonists that I know. He did a book called uh, Same Difference in Other Stories that came out in the early 2000s. It won all three major comic book industry awards. It won a Harvey and Eisner and an Ignatz. Uh-huh. So after that, publishers started chasing after him. And uh-huh. he, you know, mm-hmm. great friend introduced me to uh-huh. one of these publishers and I was yeah. able to sign with them. Yeah, very cool. And and so it's it's blowing up and you're getting national attention and you get nominated for some awards. You were nominated for the National Book Award. Was that the first graphic novel that ever been nominated in finals? Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, I mean, like I said, the, the reason why I think that happened was because there were these graphic novels that were definitely literary and, and awards worthy that had been, you know, slowly coming out before that. And eventually awards like the National Book Awards started considering graphic novels yeah. because, of, because of the books that came before me. But it was it was it was the first graphic novel to get nominated for a National Book Award. That was a stunning, crazy experience. It was yeah, yeah like because when you're a graphic novel person, like when you're right. a comic book person, you you dream of the Eisners, right? Right. Um, so for the National Book Award to happen was just uh, yeah to get nominated for that was uh, was stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering what it feels like to be living such a childhood fantasy, you know, like going from doodling in the margins of your papers to be, to getting to do this for a living and being like such a trailblazer. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's really weird. I I think um, I try not to think about it too much. If I, if I think about it, it just, it feels so weird. My life feels so weird, you know? Uh Uh, But like day to day, I'm just like trying to hit deadlines and I'm trying to get scripts done and I'm, uh, juggling like notes from different publishers and stuff. But um, whenever I take like a bird's eye view of my life, it feels a little bit surreal. And, and your kids keep you in line, right? They, they're just, oh, you're just yeah, dad. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my kids are not, definitely not my biggest fan. They, uh, when I, whenever I show one of my, so my wife and I, we have four kids. Our oldest is 18 and our youngest is 10. And whenever I show them one of my graphic novels, they'll be like, it's okay, dad. It's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's not as That's good as so Raina Telemeyer, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. it was readable. Oh, man. <laughs> but we should say you are now a, a Hollywood producer as well because Disney, Disney Plus is making it into a show, which is super Thank exciting. Huge congrats. Yeah. And, and are they filming or they, they wrap up the They film? finished filming. They finished filming a couple of weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it was, uh, that was a really surreal experience as well. To, We've talked about Melvin Marr before. I mean, he at ABC Disney. I mean, he. I've heard they've given him the keys a little bit, where they start asking him what he wants to do. Was he the guy who sought you out, or how did this happen? He was. He was. So I I went down to L.A. to do a Panda Express event. Um, <laughs> so Panda Express would host these like summer festivals, right? And at this one summer festival, they had a panel of Asian Americans from different fields. So I was. I was from comics. Melvin was from movies. Um, there's a, a guy from architecture, you know, and, and they would interview us about the stuff. So we kind of got to know each other at the time. And then um, a few months later, he's a producer of Fresh Off the Boat. Fresh right. Off the Boat had a comic book themed episode and they wanted to release like a free comic book day offering in conjunction with that episode. So he asked me to write that. I did. And we got to know each other through that process. So eventually we talked about American Born Chinese. He wanted to option it. Um, you know, I, I've, uh, I've had a media agent for American Born Chinese ever since the book came out. But I've always been kind of um, wary of it, you know, in mm. part because of this character named Cousin Chinky, who's in the book, who I, I, I thought of as like, a, you know, he's, he's constructed to be the... Um, like the amalgamation of all of the negative Asian and Asian American stereotypes. And I was worried that if media ever came out, like if it was, if American born Chinese was ever adapted to a television show or a movie, there'd be like these decontextualized clips 
of that character, you know, on YouTube and it would just be horrifying. Mm -hmm. So I was always a little bit hesitant and I told this to Melvin and eventually like, that was one of the reasons, right? That was one of the, one of the things that had to get worked out. And eventually it did. I feel like the, the showrunner came up with this amazingly brilliant solution for that fear. Um, Mm -hmm. He addressed that fear in in such a great way. The showrunner's name is Kelvin Yu, who's one of the most brilliant writers that I've ever met. Yeah. You know, maybe that's what it takes too. like, maybe even just 10 years ago, there wouldn't be as many people behind the camera helping it along. Like you've got Destin Daniel Cretton doing the director. You got Melvin Meyer producer. You're involved. Like you said, you have, you have Asian writers helping out with this. I mean, I, I think this is and like the cast. Can we talk about the cast yeah, for a the second? Cast, the cast I mean, was stunning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got you got Michelle Yeoh, you got Daniel Wu, you got Ki Hui Kwan. I mean, he, these are some like for those of us who grew up in the '80s, you got data from Goonies in this in this show. Yeah, this yeah, is amazing. Yeah. And he's uh he's a spectacular actor. He's uh yeah he's yeah he's just yeah he's one of a kind. For sure. No, we are all super looking. Do you have a date? Is there a date on that release? Or I don't think yet? they have a release date yet. I don't all think right. they have a firm release date yet, but they did finish filming their post-production right now. Really fun. Really fun. All right. So it's safe to say that you didn't have to go back to the classroom at this point. You did a little career <laughs> switch and went full-time into comics at this point. Yeah, I'm full-time now. I, I only went full-time uh, at the very end of the 2014-2015 school years. That, that was Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's fairly recent. Okay. So like, wait, that's that's so crazy. How did your students view oh, you? You know, <laughs> it, it was like my students were not super impressed with me. Yeah, like so Yeah, yeah. So Actually, I, I this is what I remember. I remember um like uh, every now and then I'd get somebody bring a book up to me to, to sign, right? Like in my, in my class, it'd be mm-hmm. after school and they'd bring in a book to sign. Uh, and then um, I would also um, like uh, help out with, it's a Catholic school. So they run these retreats. So I'd help out with the retreat. Sometimes I do like a presentation at a retreat. So I kept doing that even after I left uh, the school. So every year for sophomore retreat, once a year, I would go and I would, I would do a presentation. Uh, and at some point, maybe two or three years after I had left, at the end of my presentation, they would give me a standing ovation. It was just so <laughs> weird, right? Because like when I was actually there as a teacher, yeah, nobody yeah. ever did that. But um, but after mm-hmm. the students who were there on campus while I was there as a teacher left, it, it just became like the dynamic became different. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Now you're an outside yeah. celebrity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Mm-hmm. So in the 2010s, you start working on Avatar, The Last Airbender, another classic. Uh, were you a fan growing up? Not growing up. You were already an adult when that came out. But were you a fan of that show and what they were trying to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was a huge fan of that show. I, I was introduced to that show by my friend Derek or Kim, actually. Uh, um, I, and I remember like I was a, I was a high school computer science teacher at the time. During lab periods, my students would be sitting at their computers working on like the latest project and they would be talking about the show on Nickelodeon. You know, they'd be saying things like, oh, who do you think is going to be Aang's uh-huh. firebending teacher? Who do you think Katara is going to end up with? All, all this stuff they'd be talking yeah, yeah. about. It. Yeah. And it would sound really interesting, mm-hmm. but I was a teacher. So I had to just be like, you got to <laughs> shut up and get back to work. Yeah, you know? right, right. Yeah. But then my friend Derek, um, he eventually loaned me the first season on dvd and he was like this is the best cartoon series ever you know and yeah. I was like, it was on nickelodeon how good could it be but he was totally right he was totally yeah, right yeah. yeah yeah and i became a i became a fan so when the opportunity to write the the comic book continuation of that show came up i, I jumped at the chance yeah no it's great Mike, we have your books here at, at the house it's a great it, it's just a quality show and then you know, not produced by Asians, but it has such an Asian-centric feel to it. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. I think, um, I remember Derek and I talking about it, and we were both just shocked that it was not created by Asian-Americans. Yeah. You know, it just feels so Asian-American. Yeah. And I think it's because Mike DiMartino and Brian Canisco, they just really did their homework. You know, they really yeah. did their homework. They included Asian-Americans on their creative teams. Um, they had a lot of the the animation done by these Korean studios. And usually when an American studio like Nickelodeon works with a Korean studio, they just basically have like a, 
I mean, the American studio just tells them what to do, you know, but what Mike and Brian did was they invited the Korean animators to give feedback and they did. And, and I think all of that shows. It works. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get invited to do some Superman. Uh, Superman crushes the clan. Was that your first DC stuff or? No, I actually did 10 issues on okay. the Superman uh, book. And then after that I did, uh, I did Superman smashes the clan. I also did um, new Superman for them. So uh, that, that was actually what ended up leading to my leaving the classroom. Uh, I just, I got to a point where I felt like I could not, like I couldn't write, I was like writing uh, Avatar and then I was working on my own graphic novels and then I was also teaching. And then when I was offered Superman, I was like, I can't add Superman on that stack, you know? So I ended yeah. up leaving the classroom, which was really <laughs> hard. It was actually, it was actually a little bit traumatizing. It, it felt like a, it felt like a romantic breakup. It felt like I was breaking up with a girlfriend, you know, like, I <laughs> like after I told my principal yeah. I wasn't coming back, I couldn't eat for a while, you know, I, <laughs> it, was hard to eat, it was hard to sleep for a while. It was like, mm -hmm. so weird. It was much more emotionally impactful than I was expecting it to be. But, um, uh -huh. but I did, I did 10 issues of Superman. I did 24 issues, 23 issues of new Superman. And then I did some work on the terrifics, which is like the DC version of, um, of Fantastic Four, mm -hmm. and then uh, and then Superman Smashes Clan, and now I'm doing Monkey Prince for them. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Let's let's talk a little bit about New Superman. Uh, that idea, I th I heard a story that when they pitched that idea to you, you were like, I don't want to do a Chinese Superman. Yeah, that sounded so stupid. It sounded <laughs> terrible. I did not want to do that at all. Yeah, they they called me out. It was so funny. They called me out, and they're like, Okay, don't get mad, but we want to do this Chinese Superman, and we want you to write it. And at first I was like, oh man, I do not want to do that. Because it wasn't Chinese American. You know, I think if they had yeah. been like, we want to do a Chinese American Superman, I would have been all over that. But like, I just felt like I'd never lived in China before. I didn't really know what it was like to, yeah. you know, and to, yeah. to write a story that was set in China. I'd only visited for like a week. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. And, and also like um, even my own family history, uh, my, my grandparents left mainland China uh, right as the communist party was coming uh -huh. into power yeah uh, and it was part of the reason why they had to leave was because my grandfather worked for the nationalist government right. you know right. that was displaced so they ended up in 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 taiwan and then we have a lot of relatives who um were in china like my my grandparents siblings were all in china during the cultural revolution uh -huh. so we have lots of like these yeah really bad stories right, you know like right. these really really <laughs> horrible family stories and and i just thought man like uh like superman is supposed to be about truth justice and the american way how does that like <laughs> jive with these family stories that i grew up with yeah, you know and it, yeah. it just felt like too much it felt like there were too many like these holes these political holes that i could fall into with that idea yeah. But then I got called into the DC offices, their brand new offices in Burbank. Uh -huh. So they were in New York for a very, very long time. Right, right. And then right after I started working for them, they, they moved to Burbank. And I went into this building. They're on like the sixth and seventh floor. I got called into Jim Lee's office. Jim Lee is like the <laughs> chief creative officer of DC right now. Right? I think he's a co-publisher back then. Yeah. And I grew up huge right. Jim Lee fan. You know, I yeah. have all of his X-Men comics at home. Yeah. So he, he calls me and he's like, this is my idea. You know, I wanted an Asian member of the Superman uh -huh. family. And he said all this other stuff that I don't remember because yeah, I was just yeah. like looking at his face. <laughs> and, um, and in the end, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to yeah. do it because it was Jim Lee's idea. It and is, it ended up being yeah. super fun. You know, like first it, I, I got to know like uh, modern day China. And, and I think, um, um, I mean, I think it's a very complicated place. I think modern day China is a very complicated sure. place, but it's also not the same, not the same place where a lot of those stories mm -hmm. in my family took place, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, um, and I think in a lot of ways, when you write a story set in another culture, you do have to make peace with the fact that it's not going to feel the same as if it were written by somebody who, who lived there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I think it's a way for you to learn more, even about, where, where you yourself come from, right? Like, I yeah. feel like writing the yeah. story that's set in China, even though it's going to read like it was written by an American, I do feel like I learned a lot about being like an Asian American. I learned yeah. a lot about being American. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Let's talk about representation in comics for a second. I mean, this would never get done 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think it's changed a lot. Like since you were a kid, like you're working on Shang-Chi as well. The original Shang-Chi was a little problematic. Oh, yeah, yeah. The original Shang-Chi was really rough. I, I was a huge Marvel fan when I was a kid. And I loved all of the Marvel superheroes except for Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi mm. the one comic that I would avoid at my comic uh. book shop, right? It would come up every now and then in like the quarter bin and I would just never, I would never touch it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it was because I um, just had not made peace with being a Chinese American myself. So picking yeah. up this book with a Chinese American character just would feel like highlighting the things that I wanted to, to hide about myself. But he was also like, th- those early Shang-Chi comics were just, rough they're yeah. really really rough yeah yeah so uh, you see things changing a little bit i i heard an interview with jessica chen she's the editor of superman yeah. series at, at, and a woman in comic books and an asian american woman i mean that's pretty cool and and you're in, you're doing the new shang chi i mean what do you see happening in the representation front on comics I, I think a lot of it is that you know um superheroes are a um i i think of them as like a very quintessentially american genre like they were invented here they kind of came into prominence mm-hmm. as america became a world superpower after world war ii um and, and in a lot of ways i think superheroes can be analogs of america or they can be sure. a metaphorical way of talking about america so when mm-hmm. there's this push for like more diverse superheroes in a lot of ways, I think it's just sort of like saying we, we want to show that America can be diverse, you know, that you can, you can be of any kind of background, you yeah. can be any kind of person and still be an American. You can still reach that, whatever, whatever that ideal is, um, that heroic ideal is within American culture, yeah. you can reach it regardless yeah. of what you look like or anything else about your identity. Yeah, no, it's cool to see. Uh, so let's talk about the MacArthur Fellowship for a second here. The Genius Grant. Um, let me read the three criteria for getting this award. You have to have exceptional creativity, promise for important future advances based on a track record of significant accomplishments, and potential for fellowship mm-hmm. to facilitate subsequent creative work. D- did you ever imagine writing a comic book or a graphic novel, a comic, a literary comic? And getting a, a MacArthur Fellowship? No, no, no. That was uh, it. I remember getting that call that that was going to happen. You know, so I, I got it's a secret, right? You don't know. You don't no, even know you don't you're know nominated. Until they give you the call. You don't know until they give you the call. And I was. Uh, it was a morning. I was pulling out of my driveway. I was getting ready to go to my workspace, and I got this call from Chicago. I normally don't pick up calls right. that I don't recognize, but I did. I don't even know why I did. Yeah, yeah. I did, and then they they're like, "You're getting this." this grant and I was just, I was stunned. I, I didn't get any work done that day. You know, yeah, I was like, I, imagine. I was just completely stunned. Yeah. Yeah. And you produced a, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out on the name of the code. Oh, secret coders. Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah, produced yeah. secret coders series of middle, middle school. Like they're, they're meant for middle graders, right? Uh, it's a middle grade series of graphic novels that teaches the basics of computer science. So I kind of took what I was teaching at Bishop O'Dowd and I, and I stuck it into a graphic novel. That was a lot of fun to work on. Uh, yeah, I yeah. still hear from, like it, the last volume came out a few years ago, but I still hear from these young coders who are really excited, you know, about the code that they wrote and they want to show <laughs> me. It's really cool. And so where I live, I live kind of near Tanfran and there's one of the last, not, not that I know of, but there's one of the last Barnes and Nobles in the Bay Area there mm-hmm. have you been in the Barnes and Nobles lately? It's been a while. But there is a wall of graphic novels that blends into manga. It is a literal yeah, wall. Yeah. Can yeah. you could you have even imagined that 25 years ago? No, no. I remember graphic- when I started when I started doing comics, I mean the the rumor was that um this is the 90s and Marvel Comics was not what it is today, right? right? right. Marvel Comics had declared bankruptcy. People uh-huh. were kind of predicting that it was going to go out of business. Um, And, uh, and if Marvel comics had gone out of business, most of the American comic book industry, the comic book shops, the distributors would all kind of collapse because everybody depended on that Marvel, you know, that the the Marvel product. So that was the, the industry that I was entering. 
Yeah. And, <laughs> and to go from there to here is just, uh, it's a little bit unreal. Like I said, I, I think American Born Chinese really did come out right place, right time. You know, it was when the industry had kind of bounced back from that really dark time in the mid to late 90s. And people were starting to become aware of what a, what a graphic novel was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read any in class, Maddie? Have you ever read a graphic novel in class? <laughs> this one. Did you read Mouse? Actually, well, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. I had a, like a pretty big graphic novel phase when I was little. I read all the Baby Mouse books, all Raina Telgemeier's books, obviously yours. And actually, when you were talking about how you um, did cartoons with your friend when you were younger, I like... I went like this because I I had a flashback of when I first read this book. I was actually in summer school and uh, we had this like comic unit and we were learning about pop art and making our own little cartoons. And that's why I read your book. Oh, that's so cool. That's great. It's funny how you say that back when you wrote it, there were not that many because when I think about graphic novels and comics and stuff, yours is like the first one that comes to mind. And I think it does for a lot of people too. So that's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome to hear. That I mean, that definitely wasn't the case when, like, uh, Curtis and I were kids, right? Yeah. Like, when we were kids. They're just I, nobody knew what a graphic novel was. Yeah, and they were definitely not in the school library. And nowadays, like, when I go to a school library, there's always like this really big graphic novel section. So it's really yeah. nice. <laughs> and yours is like in the front. No, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah, it really is. It's everywhere. I feel like um people my age around middle school, late elementary school, we were all obsessed mm. with graphic novels. And so it's so crazy to be talking to you because I feel like your book had such a profound effect on like my life and just when I think about my childhood, you know what I mean? It's like your book and all those other books that I read come to mind. So it's really surreal. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying all that. I mean, like I said, super, super yeah. lucky to be involved in comics yeah. right now. Uh, like Raina, Raina Telgemeier and I, we kind of came up in comics together and we talk about that a lot, how um, we were just very lucky to be a part of comics and graphic novels, you know, yeah. during this time. Mm-hmm. Raina Telgemeier, Lowell High School graduate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's yeah. right. All right. Well, Jean, Jean Yang, you survived our difficult questions. Now it is time for Madison's lightning round. All right. Awesome. (laughs) Time to shine. Yes, this is always my favorite part. Okay. So this is my lightning round, and I just ask you a few questions, just fun ones that you can answer. So the first one is, what's your superpower? Or like, if you had to pick one, what would you pick? Oh, man. So the Monkey King has this power where he could clone himself. Uh-huh. Yeah. I would so want that because I would be able to hit, like, I would never be late on a deadline if I could clone myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's your actual human superpower right now? Like, for me, I'm I'm really good. If there's leftovers, I'm good at picking the right size container to put those leftovers in. That's my, Ooh, that's my superpower. That's really, really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's your superpower? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Picking ill-fitting pants, maybe. <laughs> I always have ill-fitting pants. <laughs> Second one is, who's a superhero you'd most like to hang out and grab a meal with? Okay, my favorite superhero in the Marvel Universe is pretty obscure. Most people don't know who he is, but he was in like the second or third issue of comics in my collection. So I have like this very, very vivid memory of him uh, from when I was a kid. His name is Frogman. <laughs> And um, uh, I love him because I, I think his <laughs> origin story is awesome. So his dad was a supervillain. He was a Spider-Man supervillain. Um, his dad went by the name Leapfrog, and he didn't have any superpowers. All he had was this green suit with springs at the bottom of the feet. So that he would go on, he would like rob a bank and then he would like hop away with his spring feet, you know? Mm-hmm. And then eventually he, he's kind of dumb. So he um, he gets arrested and thrown in jail by Spider-Man. And then his son finds out that his dad is like the supervillain and feels really guilty about it. He feels guilty that his, his, his family is basically like a criminal family. <laughs> so he decides mm-hmm. to use his dad's 
like leapfrog suit and he become a superhero. <laughs> Except that he's really bad at it. You know, he has he's not coordinated. He could barely use that suit at all. And then he just kind of bounces around and and like follows Spider-Man. Goes, oh, can I be like your partner and stuff? And Spider-Man doesn't want anything to do with him. But he would be the one that I want to want to hang out with because. Ultimately, even though he's kind of a loser, he in the stories, he is still able to thwart crime, you know, from time to time. Mm -hmm. So he kind of like he exceeds expectations. And I think anybody who can do that, anybody who like can exceed the expectations of their own life, they have something to share with us. All right. Have you gotten to draw him in any of your comics? I did do a two page story with him for a a Marvel anthology called... um, called Strange Tales that came out. That's so special. That's cool. Yeah, it was fun. Last but not least, who's your infatuation? Which is um, basically anyone in the Asian community that you admire, um, and they can be living or deceased. Right now, um, the first person that comes to mind is Ki Kwan. Mm -hmm. So he's the actor that played uh, Data and Goonies and Short Round in um, Indiana Jones. And we are so lucky yeah. to have him in the American Born Chinese yeah. show. Yeah. Uh, he he stretched out my mind because um, I've been watching this clip of him on the show over and over and over again because I feel like in this clip he says all of these things I I have wanted to say as oh, an Asian American. Wow. Mm-hmm. I feel like he kind of gave voice to um, something deep inside of our community. I can't wait for it yeah. to come out. You know, so people people can yeah. see yeah. what how brilliant he is. I, I guess people already know. People already know how brilliant he is. But this will just be another, you know, another level yeah. that people will get. No, to he, see. And he's got a great story as well, too. Just yeah, he really getting does. getting into these roles that are iconic and then disappearing from the acting scene for decades, and then mm-hmm. with the everything everywhere all at once, amazing portrayal there. Yeah, good choice. Good choice. Well, that's it for our episode. Gene, thanks so much for coming by. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you, Madison. Super fun fun chatting. Yeah. So uh, thank you too, Madison, for coming by. Always. She's giving us a thumbs up. (laughs) You can't give a thumbs up on radio, Madison. Uh, Let's see. So socials for Eugene, you can go to jeanluenyang.com. I'll spell that out in the show notes. Uh, jeanluenyang on Instagram and Twitter as well. Everybody, go out there, go to your local bookstore, buy some comics, go to your comic store and buy some comics, or go buy some graphic novels, or go to your public library and get those. Everybody should be reading. It doesn't matter what you're reading, you should be reading, right? Uh, And so, everyone out there, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. Hope you learned something. If you want to write to us your favorite superhero, or maybe you have a Frogman uh, story that you want to tell us, you can write to us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at The Infatuation Podcast. And of course, I'll put all these details in the show notes. Follow us on Spotify or Apple. You know how to do this, everyone. But on behalf of my guests, Gene, Madison, and myself, we hope you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.